Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. to a great start to the week. Uh, Dennis Stone is here tonight. Uh, we're going to get into some updates about America's Stonehenge and plug uh, tomorrow's uh, solstice ceremonies. Um, you know, this show uh, sets up another ancient mystery show next Tuesday afternoon and on uh, two. Tuesday, uh, July 11th, uh, we have another true crime show with Dan Stashauer and his new book, American Demon. And Dan was a sta- uh, Dan uh, was a consultant uh, for Mark Dewidziak's, uh Poe biography we covered a couple months ago. So you know, you're going to get some. Uh, you know, really fascinating insights into a uh, true crime case that Elliot Ness was involved in in Cleveland in the 1930s. So um, just put those on your calendar and uh, tune in. You you won't miss want to miss those two shows. Okay, so um, hi, Dennis. How How are you doing? Oh, good evening, Mark. Uh, nice to hear from you and Barbara. Uh, doing pretty well tonight. Good. Okay. So um, I think this is the second season after the three winter long forestry project. Um, let's look at the benefits of what the forestry crew did to your property and advanced um, historic preservation? 
Uh, right, yeah. We uh, <clears throat> we started the project a few years ago in 2018, hiring a licensed forester. And, uh, he worked over the uh, two winters of 2019 and 20, and then 2021 while the ground was frozen. And um, <clears throat> so actually, we've had about two years now since they finished up the project. Um, and it looks wonderful up there. They actually thinned out the uh, almost 110 acres. They thinned it out. They removed uh, dead, dying, and diseased and mature trees, um, some invasive species. There wasn't too much of that. Uh, wildlife was also considered in the whole project, um, and we're seeing a lot more of that. And um, the alignments are so much wider than they were. You know, the ones we started clearing back in 1965, as a matter of fact, and um, we actually never quite finished that. We still have a couple to go, actually. Uh, but uh, they opened up a couple of lunar alignments that were never open, you know. So oh. the next lunar cycle will be uh, the lunar major standstills, north and south, moonrise and moonset. And uh, although we know they work astronomically and mathematically and from survey work, we haven't really watched them. Because trees are in the way, and by the time you see the, uh, the moon, it's way above the horizon, above the tree line, so you can't really see it on the uh, horizon where the, uh, the marker stones would be. So I'll be watching that, uh, you know, it's about two years. We'll get the dates on that and everything. Um, and then the one after that will be nine years later. It'll be in around 2034. I've got to get the dates on that also. Uh, but the alignments look pretty, you know, amazing today. You can actually see the sun. Uh, I was watching it last night, actually rolled down the hill on the summer solstice, two days prior, and it's about the same because sun standstill means that the sun actually looks like it stands still for about three or four days on either side of the the date of the uh, solstice. It stays in that same position pretty much, and then it will slowly start moving back towards the next season of fall, you know. So the alignments are great. Uh, We have some alignments, like I mentioned, we've never seen. The watch house is one of them, though. Equinox sunrise into the watch house was never seen until 2020, uh, right after they started the first year of the forest management project. And it was pretty a pretty amazing uh, illumination inside that chamber. Um, and these things all kind of remain hidden, you know, until you can actually witness them, you know. You can kind of predict them. Um, first, you've got to recognize where the sun might go or whatever uh, into a structure or over a stone. Um, in the first place, <clears throat> open up the clearing and then watch and see what happens, you know. Um, and this year, actually, Mark, is the uh, 50th anniversary of the survey work where astronomical alignments began. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, a, gosh, it was uh, 19 years old. It was 1973. And my dad, I had put my uncle Oz, my dad's first cousin, we called him Uncle Lo, and he began um, hiring a team to actually come up and survey the site. Uh, what we call phase one, and that was basically the uh, 15 acres that contained the uh, monoliths or the stone markers with the sunrise, sunset, and as we know today, moonrise and moonset and star alignments took place. <clears throat> and uh, the company they hired was from uh, Derry, New Hampshire, uh, about eight miles from here, and the company was uh, Beverly Pearson and Associates. And uh, the son, actually, Charlie Pearson of the owner, uh, is the gentleman that came up with his team. And they and I remember the getting out of a white suburban Chevy, I believe it was, and um, unloading up near the back gate, taking out all the transits and the stadium rods and, you know, and they had ribbons and they had some brush cutters and everything. And they went out and started surveying these 
alignments, and they did so over the next five years uh, to 77. It took a while because of money. They kind of pay as you go with them, and mm-hmm. uh, they were very, very good about it. <clears throat> he'd take the data. He'd go back on his computer at the time. It might have been a Texas Instruments computer. I think he has it all on the records. He tells you the type of um, uh, theodolite he had, uh, 1-2000 theodolite, the brand. Uh, the, the computer, I believe, was a Texas Instruments computer, the, the model of that, which I can't remember. And they would take and, you know, um, look at all the data. They, they'd put it through the computer. And then they also created uh, maps of where these stones were, you know, actual survey maps. Uh, the map that was done prior to this was back in 19, I'm going to say 1953, by a guy named Woodman. And up to that point in 73, we used his maps. And they were very well done. They were surveyed, but they, they didn't uh, have all the little details that we needed for the astronomical work, even more precise, especially the monoliths. They were just surveying walls. They weren't actually looking at features like standing stones, you know. So, um, you know, over 20 years later, we're doing this with Beverly Pearson and Associates. And uh, so 50 years ago, we started that. Um, and we have another another anniversary, of course. Uh, tomorrow is the day we opened in 1958. Uh, as the Stone Ruins of New Hampshire. And um, as my dad did open it to the public for the first time, so we're having kind of a special anniversary. They go by very quickly. I remember doing the 60th, it seems like yesterday. Um, so we opened up that year. We've been going ever since, uh, 65 years. Um, and, uh, and next year will be the year uh, my dad started the group NERA, New England Antiquities Research Association. So we got a bunch of things going on, and uh, the year of the moon, we'll also have a 70th anniversary of my dad visiting the place in 1955 for the first time. So lots of little things happening right now. But right now we're waiting for the summer solstice tomorrow for the sunrise and sunset. It's going to be a really long day. Uh, <clears throat> it'll be, uh, I think, around five, uh, 4.20 in the morning, roughly. We actually have the time written down when it rises. And then uh, it sets sometime around 8.24, roughly, in the, after, uh, in the evening, you know. So it'll be about a 17-hour day almost. Uh, when we get done and everything. So hoping for good weather right now. It looks like it's clear out. And it was a nice sunset tonight and a nice sunset last night. So the forestry thing has really aided us in that. Uh, we just visited Serpent Mound in Ohio, which you've been to. Um, and it's yep. an amazing place. Uh, uh, as you know, Mark, when you're there too, there's a lot of trees around there. And we love trees. Nothing wrong with that. But I think they planted them years ago. Some might be, um, you know, just natural trees that were growing there. But I think some were planted and there's, I guess, been a reluctance to actually uh, remove them, especially like the summer solstice sunset. It kind of did a little bit, it looks like. You know, it's like a little bit of a opening, but I don't think it's enough to really see the sunset. I think you'd probably need a drone or something to go up and actually watch it sit over the serpent, kind of the uh, axis right. of the head and what they call the egg today, you know. Um, it's too bad. I mean, um, with our place, we can make a decision within the family group, and we take others' advice and even staff. You know, we kind of include people. But ultimately, we make the decision, and we did on the uh, forestry project, you know. And sometimes when you get kind of a, <clears throat> a bureaucracy, if you will, uh, you know, sometimes that can be kind of uh, problematic. People just don't. Like, we don't want to remove any tree, you know. And some people say, we need to move them just for the alignments, you know, just for the clearing. So that can be kind of an issue. But I say after seeing uh, Great Serpent Mount, I could see where if they could just open it just a little bit, a couple trees, you know. Uh, maybe improve the health of the forest here. It seems to be quite overgrown there, too, you know. Uh, you could actually watch the sunset there. It'd be pretty cool. They have the equinoxes and the winter solstice, too. But supposedly, uh, 
shooting off in some of the lunar alignments. So I don't know how to ever see a lunar alignment uh, like us. The trees are in the way, you know. But um, but we have taken uh, action to try to uh, open it up. Like the ancient people probably had a very open vista there, you know. Uh, it's mostly bedrock with a very thin layer of soil today with bedrock exposed everywhere. A very slowly windblown soil and particle uh, from um, windblown particles and vegetation decay about an inch and a half or so every hundred years, you know, buildup of soil, the creation of soil. But we have erosion going on out there. So buildup doesn't have a very thick layer of soil, but it does have enough to have a forest on it, you know. So um, the ancient people didn't have to have that problem, probably. Uh, uh, Dennis, but, uh, you, know, <clears throat> you know, with all the times you've uh, you know, been a guest on Nightlight, uh, you, know, you know, I think you've you know, mentioned on you know one occasion that uh most likely when the chambers the stone chambers uh were built and you know, it was first being utilized um it was probably uh you know a, a barren hilltop um do we know about when uh, trees started growing on uh, you know, what would become your property? Well, probably even when the uh, hilltop was much more bare, I'm sure they had some vegetation up there, and they probably even had to remove some of those, you know, the brush or trees as it grew into the alignment. You know, and it would have been much more open, less bedrock, and less vegetation. But I think they still had some trees, and they could use some of that for uh, log rollers if they were big enough. They could use it for log levers and inclined planes of earth, actually, to put rocks on top of the stone chambers or roof slabs and so forth. But with a with a pretty much a bare hilltop, they didn't have soft soil, so the log rollers wouldn't sink into the into the dirt and create all sorts of issues moving of the slabs. You know, because some of these slabs are still out in situ today. We found. Uh, I think 34 is the number we have, and the first one was found uh, just over 40 years ago in 1982 near the North Stone, you know, and it's about an eight by maybe four foot stone roughly, and it looks like a roof slab today. But wherever it was, they raised it off the ground, propped it up, and then they started shaping it using a hammer stone, and all the little flakes of stone were found in 1983 when they excavated finally in front of it, showing that, yes, the stone had been shaped kind of like an arrowhead, um, but the people back then probably at that point could have uh, taken that stone and moved it into the site about 300 feet um, without the trees in the way, you know, uh, without the soil causing a lot of friction with logs sinking into the soil. They would have had probably a fairly, a fairly clear hill. And then in the first step is to find um, bedrock that they can actually you know, actually split. So they would look for a fracture in the bedrock, I think, you know, and then they would work okay. the fracture of wedges. But your your point is well taken. I think if they do flotation, archaeologists look for uh, pollen and different seeds and stuff like that. Perhaps we have to do more with that to find out as we get out into the soil near the bedrock, the old soil is there. And I think they have done a little bit of that flotation, looking for pollen, but I think probably more. Uh, in that case, that might answer your question. Like, yeah, we go down, 
Some areas of the hill have a uh, 30 inch of soil, others, other parts are bare, bare bedrock still. So we get into some areas where the soil has accumulated, get to the bottom of that right near the bedrock and see if they can find any kind of pollen or any kind of, you know, evidence of the vegetation at that time period would be great, you know. So I think that might be something we'll have to look into a little bit more. I think trees have been around since the end of the, you know, when the glaciers kind of left, uh, eventually trees came into the area, you know, animals, trees, fish into the lakes and ponds and stuff like that kind of slowly, you know. But, but again, it was probably a pretty fair hill. And all the hills around us probably were the same. So when you look at the hills today, you're looking at probably 50, 60, 70-foot trees in the distance. So the horizon uh, would have been just a tiny, tiny bit lower, you know. In fact, we've seen where people have cleared probably for homes or something on some of the distant hills, and you can see that where the trees are removed, it's a little lower, you know. And that's where the sun would have rose over, over the earth, not over trees as we're watching in the distance today, four or five miles distance, you know. So, uh, but it is a good point, I think, you know, and uh, they, you talk to the forestry department, uh, or you just talk to geologists, they tell you the history of the landscape, the type of trees that came in first and then later, you know, and uh, the whole progression of vegetation over the years, you know. But um, I think I'd say we could do that, you know. We need another archaeologist, you know, Pat Hume was with us for 32 years, and she retired almost two years ago. She's going to visit us again, but I think she's in her 80s now. So uh, she was a president of the Hipshire Archaeological Society when she began with us, and then she got so many other people interested in the site. But, you know, her, she's kind of retired, and so she's kind of looking for a replacement for herself, too. We just haven't found anybody yet. So that's, uh, that's something we have to do. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, uh, you know, you st- when you were talking about you know the soil accumulation on you know, bedrock, mm-hmm. you know, that probably in a show we're going to do in about a month, you know, that topic's going to be uh, brought up as well. So I I like how these discussions set up in. Uh, an understanding for the audience for future shows, and it, it you know, that does happen. And, and in fact, I'm looking forward to hearing more about it from uh, you know ge- geologists at this site we're going to be covering. So I, I'm I'm really intrigued by that. I have to I'll make a note to bring that up to uh, John next month. But um, you know, when you were getting the show started, and you know, talking about some of the early crews that were you know, keeping the um, alignment avenues o- open, so the you know visitors could actually observe the you know celestial phenomena from the uh site um okay you now you had to had to do that but with the you know Brian and the forestry crew and the new equipment that he brought onto your site how how much wider are these vistas now to the horizon and 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 it's still you know, Probably much wider than when Scott was up there uh, filming 
for the first season of um, America Unearthed. Yeah, so he filmed that uh, uh, during the uh, summer of 2012. They they came in June Jeez. and came back and shot some more footage. So that was 11 what? years ago. It, uh, yeah, doesn't seem like I it. Can't 11 years, it doesn't seem possible. Um, yeah, we sat at Clarium in 65, as I mentioned, that was a winter solstice sunset. And they had a clear out about 800 feet from the main site out to where the hill goes down into the valley. And they even had a clear down the valley to the top of the trees weren't, you know, showing on the horizon. And the uh, avenues kind of fan out. They'll start out a little bit narrower, you know, near the site. And as they go out, they actually get wider and wider uh, just to kind of take in the vista. And also so the sun will comes down and actually rises and sets at an angle, you know, because of a latitude, you know, it doesn't come up straight up. It comes at an angle, you know, and it rises. And then when it rises, it goes from the from the uh, horizon. Then it goes up to the right, if you will, at an angle for any of the alignments. And then when it sets in the evening, it comes to, from your left and it kind of comes down to the right. And so what we did is we opened up particularly to the left side for the sunsets and uh, in the right side of the sunrise markers, you know, I wanted to make sure that you could actually watch the event a little bit longer. Some of the avenues we opened up, and it was again 50 years ago that uh, we uh, not only had the site, the survey team, but by then we had opened up the summer solstice sunset and a couple other alignments were being worked on too. A lot of clearing of trees back then, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of feet of trees. Um, and so uh, they weren't, you know, they were wide enough because there's so much work, so labor-intensive cutting the trees down, cutting the branches down, and, and then slowly making firewood or letting the trees just ride out in the woods, you know, back then. I think we made firewood out of some of it. But um, with the equipment they had, they can go along and do, like, in about, you know, an hour, which would take us weeks to do, you know. The fellow muncher would come on, cut the tree, lower it, cut the tree, lower it, uh, and then... Uh, the skidder would come along, grab like several trees at once and haul it off to the area where they would um, actually sort it out for firewood, for lumber, for uh, wood chips for making fuel or heating a school. In one case, school was buying the wood chips to heat the school, you know, some bio material. So oh, okay. they made a lot of products, but they really, which is good, you know. And then uh, it was like harvesting a product so you can make money on it too um, and at the same time make the trees healthier and we have so much more wildlife up there than I've ever seen. But the avenues are probably at least twice as wide, in some cases three times as wide, uh, as what we originally cut. Again, starting in 65, that really took off after watching the uh, first sunset in 67. We have those photographs. That was a surprise to me two years ago when the guy that actually started clearing the 1965 alignment, um, we've been... Uh, on Facebook messaging each other for a couple of years now. And he stays in France for the winter and he has an island up in Maine in the summer. And I was just talking to him today, as a matter of fact, and he hasn't seen an alignment for 50 years. So he may try to get back um, before he heads back to France next uh, late fall. He'll head back over there. His wife's from France and she just came over uh, a couple of weeks ago. But he wants to get up and see an alignment for first time in half a century. But he came on board in 63 as a I think he was 15, let's say, and by 67, he was actually working on that alignment, clearing it, the winter solstice, you know. Um, I had to ask him what equipment he was using back then, you know. I assume chainsaws, but he was a kid, so maybe he was using, I know some of the people were using axes, actually, to cut some yep. of the trees there. And that's a slow process, as you would not expect, you know. Yeah, and when we saw, the, 
and he took the first photographs and uh, two and a half years ago when I was a dentist. I have pictures from 67. My first time I ever saw it was 70, and it was with him too. He had come up from Newport News for uh, Virginia, and um, he came up in his bug-eyed, uh, you know, uh, 1958 um, Triumph, I think it was, and um, I, he sent me a picture of that, too. And it was in the wintertime driving that little car. I don't know how warm that thing would have been, but he came up, and we had over a foot of snow. He met at his parents. He had built a wooden snowmobile out of old Clara snowmobile parts, but it was a wooden snowmobile, and he broke the trail so we could actually watch the sunset. And it was the first time I think my dad saw it, and when he saw it in 67, it was cirrus cloud, so he could see it a bright spot on the stone over the marker. But when we saw it in 70, the skies cleared. There just a couple little clouds on the horizon, or just above the horizon. The sun went below it, hit the, uh, hit the stone, you know. And so it was the first clear alignment. And that's when we really picked up clearing more trees, opening up the avenues. Um, and, um, you know, several years ago, just before I retired, uh, Dr. David Stewart-Smith, who had done a project on his property about 30 miles north of here. He had a farm. And uh, Dave said to me, he goes, you know, you can't clear the whole hill yourself, you know, all the alignments. Uh, I was still working at the airline flying, but he says, even when you retire, it's a lot of work. And I hired these guys, a licensed forester. They're very professional. They're bonded. And uh, the licensed forester will hire the right company that he knows is a good company and not a fly-by-nighter. And uh, they'll do a very nice job. And he said, when I had my, uh, I think he had 25 acres done. He goes, it just looks so beautiful up in my property. The trees are so healthy. Um, you know, animals and all of that. So he, he told me that about 10 years ago, and he's an archaeologist. He's a doctor, you know, historical anthropology. He was certified in archaeology, and he was a doctor of uh, theology also, and a master stonemason. And uh, he played the bagpipes at a recording studio, and he went to Scotland all the time, you know. <laughs> but anyway, he says, you've got to have, you've got to have a professional because you're, you're working awful hard, and um, uh, we know what you want to accomplish up there, but I would really recommend hiring a uh, licensed forester from New Hampshire or Mass, uh, you know, local, and then they don't hire the right team to come up and start the work, probably in the wintertime, which they did, you know. Uh, North Stonington, Connecticut, in 2018, they have um, structures all over North Stonington. There's 35,000 acres and private property, some public property land, and some is on, conserve, I guess, conservative land or what, conservation land, excuse me, conservation land, and that conservation land was about the same size as that property, and it has stone chambers on it. So in 2018, they brought in a licensed forester. He hired a team just like ours, and this is in Connecticut, about eight mile, 80 miles away, and they liked it so much what they did. That was, we heard, we got feedback, too, that the, uh, the licensed forester actually spoke at the NERA meeting, I believe, in 2019, and he gave, you know, a report on, you know, why it's important to manage the forest. Um, you don't want a lot of fuel collecting. You'll have awful forest fires because we lost 15 acres uh, back in April of 2010, right after my dad passed. Some kids set a fire, we believe, and it was in April. That's the wet season. That land went up quickly. All of that fuel that was out there in this area that's hard to get to on our property went up in like it was up in like an hour, hour and a half. It was all burnt, you know. So he. Um, came to the near meeting, this licensed forester in 2019, he explained it. And the problem, too, is when trees fall over, they fall on the structures. You can imagine the damage to a wall or to a chamber. But their roots also penetrate walls and chambers. And if the tree goes over, it just rips everything out of the ground. I have probably about a 2,000-pound slab 
It's next to one of the logging roads. And this great big oak tree about three years ago was in the middle of their project. So when they came back, this tree was right across one of the logging roads. And they just cut it, picked it up like it was a toothpick. But it had moved. The roots had actually grabbed, grabbed onto the slab and pulled the whole thing up in the air. And I took pictures of it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. and, and eventually... Uh, when they came and cut the tree to get it out of their way, and then they took it away and they made whatever they did out of it, that tree, the stump went back to its original position. That, that big slab went flying back on the ground. Um, that's the kind of force that a tree can have, you know. It can rip a structure apart. It can rip a wall apart. So what we tried to do is have trees back away from the walls, you know, cut them. And they tried to do it as much as possible. There are some walls you can walk, you know, if you are visiting, Barbara, you say, gee, oh, there's some trees still near the walls, you know. So they couldn't get every one of them because there's thousands and thousands of feet of walls. In some areas, you're just kind of hard to get at. But but for the most part, they tried to back the trees away from chambers, like the watch house, and some of the other features in the walls, like the windows. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, the, and the monoliths, you know, the standing stones, when they get into the 15 acres, very, very, they said, we've never worked in an area so... Um, what can I say, so sensitive to our work. Uh, and they did a wonderful job. I mean, they were on their toes because they knew every stone feature up there, you know, shouldn't be run over or hit by a tree coming down, you know. And they and they saved it for last. And they did a really nice job. So they were very respectful of the uh, property and the chambers. And they knew, they, were, they knew that was a priority, you know. And that's one of the reasons we were clearing the trees is to help protect the walls all over the hilltop, you know. Okay. Well, it's kind of a win-win thing, I think. Well, it, it, it sounds like um, everyone benefited, and even the school that had uh, some of the uh, a wood donated uh, to them. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think actually in that case, Mark, the uh, town actually bought the wood chips from the company, you know, and I think they actually purchased them. I mean, I'm sure the rate was good, you know. Um, I don't know if it was a donation. I mean, I don't know for sure. Because everything was a product, and I think they just the school actually was saving money on oil, you know, for whatever they were doing, I guess. Um, but the other wood chips went into a company buying, actually bought them for making electricity. And the truck was a 18 wheeler, but actually had extra set of a, a, an extra axle, so it was like a, a 22. These things are huge. They'd uh, blow the wood chips into the truck with a 24 inch wood chipper. And then they would haul it. Something would actually they go into this um, kind of a, uh, a a platform, and the whole platform would grip the truck somehow, or at least the trailer part of it, and it would actually tilt it right into the bin, I guess. And then they would use that for making uh, electricity, you know. So the school is happy because they bought a, I think, a product to heat the school at a, you know, probably a pretty good rate. I did, I wasn't on that part of it, you know. Uh, it was a company that was doing all the forestry, you know. Um, so whatever the market will bear, you know, out there for the products, you know. Sometimes lumber prices were up, and the lumber prices went up while we were cutting. And they said, it's a big time, because in another year or two or three, you know, the market could be way down, and this is what you'll get, you know. So uh-huh. it's like a, a crop, you know. It's the same as yeah. a crop where farmers go to market. They sell their food products. It's kind of like that. Wood products are like that, you know. So, so. Well, it, 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 the, it, basically the whole tree was used – yeah, in yeah. Yeah. one way or another. And anything left over, I pick up and I bring it home and keep my house warm with it. You know, I've been doing that for, I lost 15 pounds doing that, cleaning up 
they were pretty neat and clean, but there's always debris left behind. And some Brian, the uh, forester, said, well, you just leave it up there, let it rot. It's good for the, oh, you can take it home with you. And I opted to clean up because people are out there looking. They don't want to see, you know, a lot of little debris they have to step over or, you know, especially looking at the chambers, you know, that you want it to look neat, you know, you want it to look professional. And it kept my house warm. Uh, we bought one tank of oil for the last few years, you know, so each year my son lives next door and he's buying like a tank a month, you know, and you know what the price of oil is, heating oil is through the roof, you know, four bucks, four something a gallon. Mm-hmm. So um, I get my exercise out of it too. But I think it's really good. We may do stargazing. So we have this area that they created. Uh, they sort the wood out. It's called the staging area, the landing. They have other names for it. Um, I think I'm going to do stargazing in that area. That's another opportunity that presented itself. We can do it on top of the hill. This is kind of a little bit down on the side, but it's such a big open area. It's as big as our parking lot, but it's open. And I think we'll talk about the 57 alignments. We'll talk about, uh, you know, some of the new discoveries with the illumination and and the watch house. Um, And also um, possibly the serpent walls and they may have been inspired by the constellation Draco, which, you know, we can go out there and look at that, too. And um, National Parks do those kind of uh, events on Friday nights, like at Chaco Canyon. Moundville, Alabama does that. We were up at Hoban Week in Utah, and they have they have theirs. They were there the wrong days. Every time we've been to one of those places, it's the wrong day. But it's usually Friday evening. It's with a National Park Ranger. And it's whenever the skies get dark, like in the fall, maybe, you know, 7 or 8 o'clock for an hour and a half, two hours, whatever they do. And people bring binoculars, but they do, you know, stargazing, storytelling, um, you know, talk about astronomy, maybe about the uh, some of the mythology connected with them, you know. But I think Draco would be a pretty cool one because we have 14 serpentine walls, you know, because with the forestry project, you can see them so much better now. They were hiding in the woods all these years, you know. Um, it, so we'll probably do that. Yeah. It, 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 you know, with the project, you know, you know this proposal uh, you know, you're, you're talking about. So, since you've retired, do you, do you feel that you are just scratching the surface of the uh, understanding the? entirety of the complex? Well, I think that's a great question, Mark. I think you hit the nail on the head of that. Um, uh, to kind of uh, put it in perspective, my dad died in 09, you know, just before Christmas of 09. And since that time, I mean, we found, you know, 14 uh, serpentine walls, we believe, uh, 22 of these windows in the walls. We keep finding them. They keep hiding on us. Um, and my dad used to go out and look at those walls all the time. You know, he used to go out with Dr. Winkler from Penn State, who joined us in 97. He passed away in 2001 suddenly from a heart attack. Then we go out on the ATV, and he would, I was flying. He'd, he'd either talk, I guess, talk to me in the evening at the hotel. You know, I'd be at the hotel on my overnight, and I'd give him a call. Hey, how's it going? Oh, yeah. He said, oh, well, Dr. You know, Willie Winkler was up, and we drove all around on the ATV and checked these walls, and they turn, they twist, they bend. Lots of slabs of big stones. The farmers use field stones. They go out and quarry slabs to stick in the stone walls like we have, you know. But they never mentioned the serpentine shape, and that was, again, 2016, seven years after my dad passed. We started finding those in the windows that year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
just in that short time, you know, of 11 years, or no, actually my dad died about 13 and a half years ago, uh, we found so many, that's uh, 14, and then we have the uh, 22. So, I mean, we, you know, we're talking like 36 new features, plus we found more quarried slabs. Um, in 82, we found the first one, excavated it, as I mentioned, in 83. <clears throat> and then we found a few more in the 80s. We found a couple in the 90s. Kelsey, 12, in 2012, the year that Scott Walters was filming, Kelsey was uh, <clears throat> on spring break. He started cutting some trees at the hill and started noticing more of the slabs. And then when summer came along, he was working on the woods, <clears throat> and he and a couple others found more of these slabs. And when I retired in 2016, I found more. I think there's 34 of them out there now, as I may have mentioned earlier in the show. And my dad might have known about it, about half of these, you know, maybe, uh, you know, 16 or 17 of these stones. I think he'd be quite surprised. And these things are all artificially propped up. Again, when these people built this site, you'd probably walk around the hilltop, you'd see these things sticking out like sore thumbs. But very slowly, the earth starts accumulating, the vegetation comes in pretty quickly, and all of a sudden you lose sight of these stones, you know. Um, and so they're up to 1,000 feet from the main site. And it's kind of stuck, struck me a couple of years ago that this site, I think, was going to be built bigger, and they had a much grander plan for it because 34 stones, a lot of them look like roof slabs. They had something in mind for these stones, you know, and uh -huh. exactly what it was. I think they were going to haul them up to the top of the hill. <clears throat> and again, somewhere a thousand feet and you had to still go uphill with these stones, haul them up, the, you know, up the bedrock hill, you know, and uh, put them into position in the structure. And for some reason, this work in progress ended. So that's another thing we've been thinking about. Why did these people walk away from this place, you know? It's happened so many times around the world at ancient sites. Every time you turn on History Channel, you see a, a culture that was building something, and then it's been abandoned for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. You know, why did they abandon these places? But they did, and they did that to our site, too. But before they abandoned it, they were still trying to build it. And I think if all these stones were used in the site, the main site could have been two to three times bigger than it is today. You just wonder what you were thinking, you know? What was your grand plan for it? So that's something kind of new to us also. And then because we found the trapezoid shape using LIDAR, and that's in the floor plan of the chamber and ruins, that structure that has that um, uh, several-ton roof slab falling into it, uh, the paddy chamber, which is a uh, nearby that, and then also a little uh, kind of a, um, I don't really call it an alcove, I think it is, next to the sacrificial table has two little niches some people think they kept animals in there before sacrifice is one of the theories, of course. But when you look down at it, and you really look at a carefully, it's trapezoid in shape. And the biggest surprise was the groove on the table, the sacrificial table. And that is about nine inches shorter at the top than the bottom. We thought it was rectangular, but it's actually trapezoid, too. So we have several different features, including where Patty's house was in the 1800s. And that house was maybe 20 by 40 two stories, wooden house. We think it's sitting at the bottom of the hill today, down opposite our, an old road that goes from the site down to the main road, right opposite that. The house sits right there today in the Patty family. There's a picture of the whole Patty family standing in front of it in the 1890s. Before that, it was a uh, cabin that burnt down, so they used that cellar hole, I guess. But the, the cellar hole that's on the main site, we think, was a courtyard, and they took advantage of that. What we did know, Mark, is that if you look at the LIDAR, you can go down to a centimeter so you can take pretty close measurements. We can go out there with the uh, tape measure, too, you know. But it's actually uh, a trapezoid shape to it. 
So finding one might be a coincidence. You know, then you find two trapezoid shapes in the plan view, in the table, and so forth. When you start to find multiple trapezoid shapes at the site, you start to say, they weren't using 90-degree corners. And my dad never uh, talked about that. I don't think he ever knew about that either, you know. So that's another kind of new development, kind of hiding right in front of our eyes, you know. And what does that mean? I don't know. But ancient sites around the world, like even in South America, Mexico, I've been, I haven't been to South America. I've been to Mexico several times and also over in Europe. And some of the sites in England, the floor plans I was reading last year in a book, uh, trapezoid in shape. And I was not aware of that. Hmm. But so I got to find out which ones work because if I get back over there again, I'd like to check it out. Or even if I don't get over there, I would like to do some research on that too and find out. <clears throat> so, um, it, so there it, are new things coming along, you know, new, new, new thing, new, uh, yeah. I guess, uh, discoveries. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, you know just, as, you know, you've uh, consulted more with uh, Maria Wheatley, and you know, you know we've talked about uh, some so, some of her uh, observations in England, and how, and like the spirit windows, how how you may have them at it's like the same structure uh, further down the hill from. Um, you know, the main site where all the chambers are, it it, it just seems like uh, the more people you are consulting with, uh, it, more of these features are being identified, uh, you know, like with the out. The uh, serpentine walls in Alabama, and you know, Gr you know Gr Greg Little's been a guest talking about his book on those um, serpentine walls that he visited and and wrote about, and uh, Maria and her her work um, across uh, Europe. It, it it just seems like uh, both sides of the Atlantic have a lot of the same. Uh, features. That's right. You know, Maria also, uh, yeah, I did a couple podcasts a few years ago and after she said, stay on, Dennis. Uh, I got when we talk about the uh, windows at our site there during the stone walls, you know, the spirit windows. And she goes, mm -hmm. I think she refers to them as soul, hole, soul holes over there, soul holes. But kind of the same thing like a spirit window, you know. And she sent me a picture of one from Dartmoor. And uh, recently, this, this spring, she sent me, uh, she told me there's more windows there, but she sent me pictures of serpentine walls. And I don't know exactly, <clears throat> she lives near April, and I don't remember at the moment. I think on the uh, picture she identified of the location or just generally where the, this, the walls are located. And they turn, they twist, they bend a little bit. They look like serpent walls. So I didn't know that. I didn't know they had those. I know Scotland had a uh, serpentine wall. I think Scott Walters had it on a show, but I did not know England had those. So these things are coming to light in Alabama. Yeah, the uh, rattlesnake walls that Dr. Mm -hmm. uh, Harry Holstein's working. Yep, and that's he's it. Invited us down there. Yeah, he's invited us down there, you know, to Jacksonville State University. He'll take us. I think that that's a 40-square-mile area with uh, cairns, although they seem to be very large cairns, almost like you'd call them a pile of rocks, you know, very, very large from the description. I haven't been there, so we've got to get there. 
but standing stones, um, and then it's uh, got some other stone features, but the uh, rattlesnake walls, you know, and I, he sent pictures, and they're generally a little bit smaller on the small scale, maybe on the small side of what we have, too, because we have one that's 27 feet long, and then we have, on the other extreme, the 2,550-foot wall that starts at the watch house and comes all around the hilltop back in front of itself. So these things are coming to light, including um, a couple that visited us several weeks ago from Manitoba, actually from Winnipeg, Manitoba. And um, the, the girl's uh, sister moved to New Hampshire, so they'll be back again. But she was, she's involved with that in Pox Canada. She goes, we got stone work up in that area. It's in the National Forest. And some of it is uh, turtle. And she goes, some of it's serpentine. And she sent me photographs. And that's the newest this year, that these serpent walls are up in that area of uh, Winnipeg. And uh, on the other side, it's Alabama. And on this side in New England, we have them. They have hundreds of these um, serpent walls. There's over 400 just in North Stonington, you know, Connecticut alone. The Hudson Valley, the Berkshires. Then you go out to the uh, east of Denver. That year I found out about North Stonington, Mark Stars spoke at the Near Median Ground in Connecticut. I think it was spring 2017. And then um, after he spoke, a lady from Colorado spoke with her two male colleagues by Skype. And she did a whole presentation showing other features like carns, you know, piles of rocks, carns with little chambers called chambered carns, and carn uh, fields. So you have a number of cons in an area, you know. Some people think they're star patterns or who knows what they are. We don't know. But they look like the ones that Mark had shown in the previous, you know, presentation an hour earlier. It looked like the same presentation. Also, the walls that are shaped like the letter D is in Delta. And we know there's some earthworks because I was just, again, in Ohio Valley where you've been out there. And some of the, uh, some of the earth walls were actually D-shaped, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, at our site, we have one on the south side of the main site. I knew it when I built my diorama in 1977. I'm, very carefully constructing about 15 acres where the alignments are in the main site. And um, and I see the wall shaped like the letter D. And it stayed in my mind all these years. North Stonington has them, and they're in Mark Starr's book called Ceremonial Stonework. It's one of the uh, 25 categories that he lists. And then the lady from Colorado showing those, too, out there. And then she shows the serpent walls, and one of them had a head just like one of our 14. And my wife and I were sitting in the back, probably 100-something people there, and the audience were in the back there. We both hit each other, nudged each other with our elbow and go, that's like our, that looks like our serpent's head on one of ours. You know, we both looked at each other like, whoa, you know. After that, we found her in, um, near um, Mount Shasta in a town called Weed, California. And I got 110 pictures uh, from that area, from the former vice president of NERA. He's really still active in all of this. He lives in Connecticut near North Stonington, as a matter of fact. And he sent me all these photographs in there. And he goes, also, be aware that they're in Oregon and they're in Washington State, although we haven't got the pictures of those yet. So there seems to be these serpentine walls. And over seven years ago, I guess when I first, 2016, it's seven years ago already, uh, if you had spoke to me at seven and a half years ago, and, you know, Mark, when you, we first met probably, what, 11 years ago, maybe? Yeah, um, that, that sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, we never talked about serpentine walls because we had not a clue. There are windows, other than the windows in the main site. The chambers do have windows. I believe there's five stone windows in the main site. But these are 22 out in the stone walls, you know, and they, they look like a window. We never talked about them for the first few years. We did 
you know, we talked about this. You visited us in 2014, um, and we did a number of shows together. Yeah, we never talked about any of this because we didn't know anything about it. And yet mm-hmm. they're nationwide and in Canada, you know, because Mexico has, you know, has Cuckoo Khan and Quetzalcoatl, but, but not in North, you know, not in the United States and Canada, you know. But now we know, you know, they're they're up here yeah. too. No, everything keeps, you know, the research keeps expanding, and you, know, you get <laughs> more questions going. And you know, you also are involved in a another project that um, is a test on a bone fragment. Can you tell us a little bit about where uh, what's what's the status of the testing, you know, what kind of bone is it? Uh you know when when can we expect to get the results back? Yeah, that's the most uh uh exciting thing at the moment. We again we've been using, you know, lidar and ground penetration radar, we've done the optical stimulated luminescence testing just in the last three years. With those results showing pre-colonial on sites from here all the way down to Virginia, 22 sites, that information will be coming out. But the bone, actually, these bones were found in 19, the late 30s, around 1937, by Mr. Goodwin and his crew. And um, they were in the collection for three decades. And in 1968, they were brought to the Smithsonian by a school teacher in this area. And she brought them down. We have her name, but I forget her name. I shouldn't forget her name. But she, she took them to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. I think she drove them down there in 68. And they were examined by a physical anthropologist, uh, Dr. Lucy St. Poyan, I think her name was. And she looked at these bones, and she, her thoughts, we got the report back from her. She said that these three bones were, to her best knowledge, were human. There was something about the hardness of the bones and the density of the bone that puzzled her. And there were some markings on the bone that indicated that while the person was alive, something had marked the bone. And uh, so they came back to us. Uh, they made it into the local papers, and my dad actually holding them in his hands, the three bones, like the uh, Havel Gazette. I think a Boston paper. It was probably picked up by a couple other papers. The group NERA uh, at that time in 68 was four years old. Again, my dad started that group and had grown to probably 100 members by then. But it made it into their journal. And he actually wrote a special report about the bones. But since DNA didn't exist back then, they could only take it so far. Uh, but her best guess with her letters that she sent us and everything were that was human beings, you know, a human bone material. And by the way, two other, a couple other bones were looked at, and she thought they were bison, bison or buffalo, and she showed them to her male colleague there, who was more of a specialist in those animals. And he said, yeah, I believe it's probably bison, bison or buffalo. She goes, yeah, but they're from New Hampshire. And he goes, well, if you go back in time, the woodland bison were up there. So we're talking at some time in the past. It would be interesting to see when the bison were roaming the land because those were found in the watch house, um, you know, and what are they doing in the watch house, you know? Um, hmm. But back to the human bones, they sat around, you know, for 55 years. And I've been talking to one of my friends about it for a number of years. Uh, and he actually stepped up uh He's done some uh, work, quite a bit of work in South America, and he had some DNA done on the Paracas skulls, which came out interesting. He used a laboratory up in Canada, in Thunder Bay. 
He said, you know what? I'd like to see what the DNA results of these bones are. So initially, we were going to send all three of them up there, but then we decided maybe we'll send two, keep the third one, just in case something happens to those, you know, in the mail. We sent them actually in separate boxes, too, and they had to go through customs and everything. So we get the results back, uh, probably sent them up in April. We have a record of all of that. And then the results came back that uh, uh, Dr. Lucy uh, St. Hayden was actually correct. They are human. And uh, we can't say too much about it at this point because what we're doing now is we found out they are a good candidate. Uh, the, so two of the bones we sent, the other one we still have, you know. Uh, but what we did is we contacted the laboratory that did carbon datings for us. We did 12 starting in 1966, and uh, the last one was 1995, so 29 years, we did 12 carbon datings, and we haven't done it for 30, uh, almost 30 years now, about 28 years. And I talked to the gentleman, he's the son of Dr. Harold Kruger, that actually ran the laboratory starting in, I think, around 1962 or 63, he opened up the laboratory. He passed away uh, in the early 90s, so his son carried on his work. And I said, what are the chances of having bones that have been out of the ground for 85 years carbon dated? I said, won't they be contaminated? Uh, that was my best understanding that, you know, radiation, uh, environmental conditions will actually alter the results or damage the, the samples, you know. And he said, if you had them dna and they have protein and I think collagen, he goes, you can have them carbon dated. And no, the, uh, having them sit in your museum on the shelf isn't harming to their carbon dating, uh, you know, testability, if you will, whatever. He said, we can test them. So what we decided to do is uh, to take uh, all three bones to the laboratory. The one that was not DNA, uh, we have that as like a low priority to be done because we want to have the ones that are DNA that tested as human. All three bones are found in the, in the main site. They're all found close to each other. And the two bones that were DNA are actually related, probably the same person uh, to their best knowledge. It could be a close relative. But we think it's the same person, perhaps. It's like, why do we have these bones in the main site with so little soil cover up there? Uh, some of the structures to us resemble tombs, however, like the East-West Chamber, the, the, uh, the V-Hut. I've seen them in Ireland that look like that. I've seen them in France that look like the East-West Chamber. Uh, is it possible, you know, that that's where the body was and these bones, you know, came? So they were from that area of the site by Mr. Goodwin. And so right now they're uh, actually in mass, and they're going to be sending them off to Arizona to have them. Um, they're going to do mass accelerated spectrometry on them. It's particle acceleration. It's, uh, it's a more advanced or modern way of carbon dating. They actually count the atoms. And we had uh, some done in the 90s like that. I believe that 7,400-year-old date was done by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. We've used them, too. And, That's uh, prestigious. Yeah, they did that in the University of Washington did the calibration. So in the mid-90s, we still use that same lab my dad did. But there was a, uh, another gentleman that was living in the area who's a physicist, and his daughter was doing a project. So he had connections at Wood Hole. And they did the samples for us, and it was really wonderful. It came out of her high school project. And I, I, I don't know what she got for a grade. I imagine it was a good grade she got on that. And we benefited by finding out what the age of these samples were using, you know, particle acceleration, which has been around for a while. 
So down in Arizona, they'll be doing that. So in Mass, they do whatever they do to prep the samples. And we're going to have one of them tested initially. If it doesn't work, we'll go for the second because it costs about $590 per sample to be tested. So we'll do one. And if that, for some reason, fails, we have the, the other DNA one. We'll have that one done. So I told, I told the gentleman there, um, I said, uh, why don't we go with the – pick the bone that looks the best to you as a candidate. Uh, I'll, I'll use your – because you've been in this for decades. And if that doesn't work, we'll go for plan B, which will be the second bone. The third bone, it hasn't been DNA'd yet, but that could be done too, you know. It'll be in the reverse order, carbon data first and then DNA. The results were interesting. Um, I will say so far, uh, it wasn't Native American, and they've been in New Hampshire for 13,000 years. Native Americans have been around here forever. Um, it didn't show to be um, Asian or African African or you know African. remember the patties were underground railways, so it's a possibility of that, you know, having an African American. But it wasn't any of those and it wasn't animal. I thought, gee, it's gonna be animal bone, you know. So it turns out to be from another part of the world, um, which has always been interesting to us anyway. So what remains to be seen is how old it was. I talked to the people today at the laboratory and he said basically they're gonna prepare it this week. It will be sent out to um, Arizona either at the end of the week or the beginning of next week, and it should be a 30-day window. And I said, is August probably a safe bet to see the results? He goes, probably late late, uh, July. He goes, if not, it will be right at the beginning of August, unless something at the laboratory comes up and they get bombarded with work, you know, or something comes up. But he said, yeah, you should see it before August. So uh, we'll see what happens. We've never done DNA at our site. We've done carbon datings, we've done OSL datings and astronomical alignment datings, you know. But uh, this is going to be a fir- this is kind of a first for us, and uh, we're really excited. It could be uh, some bones from somebody that a few hundred years ago, you know, or it could be, you know, much older. It's all speculation at this point. We just, you know, we don't know. I don't know why anybody would be uh, uh, laying up there on the bedrock, basically with very little soil uh, in a historic period, you know, and just left there. You know, especially with Patty family being there. But maybe in a prehistoric time period, we'll see, you know. Uh, either way, it's going to surprise us, I think, because every time we turn overturn a stone, or I should say turn a stone over at our site, we have more mysteries. We have more questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, been, it's always been like that. My dad used to laugh about it because everybody tried to get an answer. We have more questions come up, you know. So it's a little frustrating sometimes, but we can laugh about it, too, you know. It's like, gosh, it's like it just never fails to more, you know, left curve balls at it, you know, all the time. Well, attendance is going to go down if uh, all the answers are available. (laughs) Yeah, there's no mystery, right? Well, I don't know. You know, I I guess that's – we'll probably never know all the answers. I like what you say because I think of that all the time. Well, there's no mystery left, you know. But the site's pretty amazing no matter what. You know, even if we kind of have a better idea of the people or the time period or at least – We'll never really know the full story because we don't. It's prehistoric, you know. Even though there are markings and these people, there's inscriptions that, across the Americas that seem to be Phoenician, Libyan, and Celtic. Those markings really don't give too much of a story. They're usually religious, you know, sayings or something like that, you know, or symbols. Um, so we don't know the whole story, and then uh, maybe rewrite the history over here, you know, in, in the Americas. You know, our site could be a part of that, you know. But there are 800 sites from Ontario and Quebec down to Virginia that have similar features. So like the David Stewart Smith said, 
a number of years before he passed. I think we got an ancient stone building culture or what he called the lithic culture in the Northeast that's been unrecognized, uh, ridiculed in some cases, you know, called all oh, a bunch of bunch of rocks built by crazy farmers kind of thing, you know. And that's an easy answer, but it may not be the correct answer. You know, a lot of work went into these structures, and they're very, very well built, aligned uh, with the heavens, um, the sophistication just in the construction of them, you know. And then all the details, all the windows, all the underground drains we have at our site, uh, the serpentine wall shapes, you don't need to build that as a farmer whatsoever. You know, farmers build walls, 240,000 miles worth of walls in Greenland, but these walls don't look like farmers' walls. So uh, I don't know if Father have all the answers, unless we have a time machine. That would be the that would be the ticket, you know, a time machine, and we can go back and talk to the builders, you know. <laughs> and then we might not have too many uh, questions after that, maybe, you know. Well, yeah, this uh, was uh, de- definitely a, a fascinating glimpse into America's Stonehenge. Um, yeah, you know, you're always welcome to come back to discuss the results of the bones. Uh, you know, since there really has haven't been uh, too many bones found on the site, and you know, they haven't been tested. You know, we, uh, we you know just over the numerous interviews, you know, we just really haven't gotten into. Uh, that subject you know, there really wasn't any direction to take with it. Um, well, you know, the other thing, Mark, too, is the uh, the Oracle Chamber came up with a little stone pendant that's on display for decades in a museum. It's like about an inch and a half. It's flat, yeah. probably slate, a drill hole. And right near there in the watch house was the other piece of bone. It looks like a small bird bone almost with a perfectly made drill hole in it. You know, the ancients had ways of drilling holes. You know, you go to mm-hmm. any place you'll see that you know they had different and i don't get into all of that but they, they show you on pictures and diagrams how they did it um but anyway those two were probably pendants that bone could be carbon dated i didn't you know maybe now i i'm thinking all these things are contaminated they've been sitting around for decades i was told that as a kid because you used to take the whatever you had organically you put it into aluminum foil even a old cigarette you know um pack you know with the aluminum in them and it was for convenience i was told by this gentleman at uh, geochrome laboratories when I talked to him this spring, he goes, that was to keep them kind of contained. And if people smoked back then, they had the cotton, had aluminum, just put them in there, you know, and everything's great. Charcoal, bone pieces, whatever you have. Um, he goes, but it wasn't to protect it from radiation. He goes, I said, that's what we were told. I saw, I think there was a big misnomer out there back then. So that little bone, if it's a bird bone with a drill hole, you know, if we get the funding, maybe we should send that in. Although what happens is they have to destroy part of it. And that's mm-hmm. the only bad thing, you know, they have this, you do lose a piece of the artifact. So, you know, it's a, one of those things, do you want to do it? Um, but it might be interesting to see the date on that. You know, who's drilling holes and bones, you know? Is it from a few hundred years ago again, or does it go back, you know, thousands of years ago? So um, that's a possible thing, too, with that, with, that, uh, with that little pendant, you know? Maybe. I don't know. Cool. So, uh, and, uh, uh you know, it's just a couple minutes after 10, and I know you have to get up early for, you know, open the gates for the, uh, the visitors who want to see the summer solstice sunrise tomorrow. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what can they 
booked once they arrive early in the morning, and it, uh, they can be there till sunset uh, tomorrow night. But you know, what's, what, what are all the activities you have uh, lined up for tomorrow? Well, probably lots of coffee in the morning. It'll be one thing just to stay <laughs> awake. We uh, definitely need that, you know. Uh, it's a it's a long day. Yeah, it starts about four. My wife is going right to the main gates, opening those up, um, and we have our staff staggered throughout the day, coming at different hours. But we'll be watching the sunrise in the morning, and then we can see not only the sunrise over that stone that was on Scott Walter's show, but we can go in by the Oracle Chamber and watch a stone rise over a stone that. We used to call the David Brody Stone. It's another monolith study in it. It's a mine, too. So that's a second one. Uh, in the evening, if people can uh, go out for the day. They can go out and do things. Some people may even go back to work, actually. And then they're welcome to come back in the evening uh, to watch a sunset. And again, that's around May 24. Uh, about 1 o'clock, there will be a celebration by Katja. She's originally from the Netherlands. She's been doing um, celebrations on our site since uh, about 1992. So I think she just hit her thir- 30th year last year. So I think it's the 30th. I'll have to check with her when she shows up. But about, it's hard to believe. I remember when she started, but she's been doing it for 30 years. She does about a three-hour celebration, singing, talking, dancing. Um, she'll be doing that up on the uh, site. Uh, on the west side, it's a big, beautiful area where, you know, we can have weddings and people do yoga but also celebrations, too. It's just a very, very pretty area. The winter solstice is in the background, the equinox sunset. And if you look hard enough, you can see the summer solstice sunset stone. Um, and then in the evening, we'll have a drumming circle. I think around 6.30 to about 8 o'clock, there'll be a drumming circle on top of the hill. And then right after that will be the sunset. If, the clouds, if there's no clouds, we'll be watching that event. Um, we may in the future try to do, like, uh, Facebook Live or something like that, so we can actually air it as it happens, you know, in the morning and evening, you know. Um, I think we're doing it this year. We just have so many things going on right now. So that's what I, we got going for summer, and we'll have some more drumming circles later on in the year, and then we have the fall equinox. Of course, that's pretty spectacular with that illumination and everything, you know. So we have things going on right around the clock uh, tomorrow, and also we have things going on, you know, throughout the year, too. But the summer solstice, uh, we've had up to 1,000 people show up. The Travel Channel came that year. Just the timing, the weather, and everything was perfect. It was a weekend, great weather. And then we had um, Inca Sun from Peru. They're actually based in Cambridge, Mass. They came up. And it just turned into one of these days where people just came. You know, they came from everywhere, you know. And we uh, had a actually ended up with a bus. We, had, we knew there were a lot of people coming. We had a bus actually going to a, about a mile down the road to a big um, shopping center. We had to use their parking lot. We had so many people. It was just amazing, you know. And after that, we've had some really big turnouts. Um, so we'll see what happens uh, tomorrow, how many people show up. It may be just a couple hundred. Or, you know, we just never know, you know. I will say the last thing, we were on the History Channel on Friday night. So, I mean, third, uh, Saturday night, we were on that one hour. Uh, it was a one-hour ancient alien show, and they showed Gunjiwamp, the Hudson Valley site, some of the sites down there, and us. And after that, we got a big uptick in our web hits. So we might actually do pretty good tomorrow with a with a nice turnout cool and, and uh, you'll be able to recap um the day's activities on jimmy church's show on thursday night is that right yeah from 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock and uh i'm looking forward to that also and he does a great uh, yeah, we'll job talk about the, and i'll give him a little update i don't i don't believe i've been on his show uh 
I've been on it once. It was probably several years ago. I'm not sure we knew about these serpentine walls at the time. It's possible we did, but uh, maybe you, maybe later after the show, you can maybe you can look it up and tell me when I was on it. You know. Um, I'm sure uh, it's been probably closer to eight years. Yeah, that sounds about right. And he's on Gaia TV, actually doing stuff I think with Walters. You know. So, um, but I'm excited to be on his show too. Um, and uh, it sounds real exciting. We'll just tell him what happened. And uh, he's got the uh, photographs. So we'll be doing uh, quite a bit on the, uh, the circuit walls and the windows and, you know, and, and some of the sunset illumination stuff. I sent them all that data. So <clears throat> we can talk about that and have some, <clears throat> some nice visuals on that, too, you know. So that should be kind of exciting. Okay. Well, um, yeah, so everyone could listen to – Jimmy's uh, esteem show on Thursday evening uh, to w- recap uh, w- what happens uh, t- tomorrow, and it sounds like a great time. I enjoyed you know my trip there several years ago, and I wish I could be there uh, for tomorrow, but. Uh, uh, you know, th- at this time of the year, you always inspire me to want to make some uh, trips and inspect some things, you know, the mounds locally. And you know, I might, tr- it, since you know, you're telling us, you know, it might be a couple, couple days with the stand sun, you know, stand still uh, on a couple days on either side of the solstice. You know, I might be able to squeeze in a, a trip up to. Uh, the Steubenville area and do some observations, but I, you know, these th- this topic always ins- inspires me to keep wanting to delve more into archaeoastronomy. Definitely, yeah. And what we saw with the mounds, you know, uh, two weeks ago, we were up, you know, just the Site Mound, the Serpent, and uh, the Chain mm-hmm. Coffee Mound complex, and then uh, the Newark being a uh, lunar observatory, you know, and uh, yeah, so right in your neck of the woods is some really amazing um, earthworks, and yep. to find out that they're astronomically aligned makes them even more interesting, I think, too, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, well, it's uh, that ho- hopefully you'll get uh, a uh, a um, you know the report in August about the. Uh, uh, bone uh, DNA testing, and you, you know, you're always welcome to come back and uh, you know give us a you know the conclusions from the lab. So you know we'll we'll leave that date uh, open for uh, an exclusive with you. So yeah, and maybe Mark, you might want to have on my friend, you know, from California. We'll talk about that together. Then you know that's a possibility. He's pretty busy. He does a lot of shows, but I think he'd love to be on and, um, you know, sure. on and, um, you know, talk about it too, you know. Um, and I was on the phone with him talking today, as a matter of fact. Uh, so that might be kind of exciting, you know. Um, I don't know which, where it's going to go with that dating on that, but uh, we may know in about 30 days. So I'd be happy to talk about that. And it could bring up different, you know, possibilities, you know, depending how old it is and everything. And we know where the person was from, you know. So that'll make it real interesting. But, 
yeah, so we'll have some of that to go, and uh, you know, it's still we're doing we're always doing something on the site, you know, more and more research. So maybe we'll have some new things too to talk about too. Uh, maybe in August, that might be a good time. Yeah, well, um, you know, you know, you're always welcome to come back, and you know, we'll we will talk about it uh, at at some point in the near future. But you know, I. I I need to let you uh, get to bed since you have to get get up at you know Dracula hours and you know you'll be up for the whole whole yeah. day. So, but it's uh, a long day. Yeah. yeah but but it, it's it, it, I'm sure everyone who shows up is you know going to be very appreciative that. You, you make it a fun uh, family e- event. Yeah, thank you, Mike. I think they do. You know, we used to get some nice feedback from the people, and they seem to really have a, you know, enjoyable day. And if the sun does what it's supposed to do without clouds, you know, people just, uh, even if it's cloudy, people like it. But if the sun's out, it's pretty spectacular. You know, it seems to invigorate people, and they get excited. And, and then, they, you know, they'll come back in the evening and watch it, too, if they're able to. Uh, and people can check us out on our uh, website, you know, StonehengeUSA.com, and we'll put pictures up there, and we'll do it on Facebook. My daughter-in-law, Kat, she does post this stuff on Instagram, and I think they just added the TikTok thing the other day. Uh, I wasn't involved with that, but uh, so Facebook, our website, um, and they, we have a YouTube, cha- uh, YouTube uh, channel now. Um, so I think uh, my daughter-in-law might be putting that on there. I'm actually sure she's going to use, like, a... Uh, video maybe of the sunrise and stuff maybe we'll see what happens you know she they just did started that this spring i guess and we're going to do some youtubes on the road too you know um we tried a couple uh a couple of the mounds we went to and it was a lot of fun we just did these little uh tiny little short youtubes so we might do that if we get out on vacation again but we'll do some from the hill you know um and cool. the fall equinox for that illumination maybe we'll get that all set up real nice and Maybe we could do that live, you know, because that's pretty spectacular, actually. So about an hour and a half illumination event, you know. We can speed it up, though, time lapse it. <laughs> for those who can't sit still for an hour and a half, but it's pretty cool. Cool. Uh, okay. Well, you know, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll keep, uh, you know, the phone lines open uh, for, uh, you know, you to come back and keep uh in, informing our listeners, you know, they love this kind of information. I, you know, Barbara and I do too. But um, I know, you know, you need need to head head to bed and get some rest for yeah. you know uh, waking up in <laughs> less than six hours from now. But uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah th- thanks, Dennis, for uh, being a guest, and we will uh, ha- have you back on some sometime soon. Well, thank you, Mike. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll talk to you in August about that. Yep. And uh, sure. thank you and Barbara and your and your audience. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll try to get some of the photographs up tomorrow, you know, uh, or by by Thursday, you know, of the uh, sunrise, sunset event and everything, and maybe the celebration. So we'll have that up there, too. So, yeah, thank you very much. And I do have to get to bed. My wife's been in bed for about four hours because she's going to – she'll be well rested. <clears throat> Not for me, though. I'll be uh, half asleep when I wake up, I guess. So. But have a nice night, Mike. Thank you so much. And Barbara, too. All right. Thanks, Dennis. We'll see everyone uh, next week.
Take care. Have a great week, everyone. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.